calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Becoming your strongest financial self? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. Get it today at northwesternmutual.com slash goodplan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's Monday, January 23rd, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So if you're in the U.S. or at all affected by the U.S., there's a lot of changes uh, that are in the midst of happening. And the question is, who are going to be the people who are going to be the big influencers moving forward? The people that we thought would be the influencers, or at least that I thought would be the influencers, are not the case. Uh, So I've been interested in seeing what the next leaders of our country and of our various sectors are going to do in the next few years. So this actually led me to take a second look at a book by Alexandra Wolfe called Valley of the Gods, a Silicon Valley story, because she really tracks the influence of one person in particular, Peter Thiel, who is one of the people who financed Donald Trump's campaign. So I wanted to see if there was anything in this book that could perhaps give me some view as to how Peter Thiel sees the world and what he might want to accomplish with this new administration. Wow, Peter Thiel is not a unifying figure, let's just say. He is one uh, that there is a lot of controversy around, especially his role in the Gawker uh, demise. And his statements are a bit off-putting to certain individuals, let's just say. Yes, he's definitely a creative and he's a disruptor. And that's what Silicon Valley is all about. And, you know, some people talk about how we're in another big tech bubble and when is it going to burst? And, you know, those of us like you and I who live in the Bay Area, this is something we hear about every single day. And our lives certainly have changed a lot by people who innovate in Silicon Valley. I mean, I was just talking about how gadgets have become obsolete because anything you'd ever need is almost now in your smartphone. I mean, I can change the temperature in my house. I'm in LA now uh, doing a show and I'm here and my house is in San Francisco and I can actually make it a little bit warmer just by using my phone, which is bizarre. And so, of course, Silicon Valley has really changed so much about Uh, our lives. And yet, a lot of the changes that Silicon Valley has produced are kind of insignificant, even comically so. You know, there are so many apps on the phone that just seem totally useless. And there's this whole ethos of, oh, well, you know, you're just the next big internet or the next startup that you, you know, everyone's working on some idea. And is it really going to have any influence at all? Or is it just going to make, you know, your world more distractible? 
How did Alexandra infiltrate Peter's world? Because he's known for a level of secrecy, especially around a lot of the startups he funds and in terms of the house that he even gets them together at. Well, that's one of the first things I asked her. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Alexandra Wolf. Support for this podcast comes from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. If you're like me, when the weekend comes, you don't want to just sit around the house. You want to get out with the family, explore new places, try new things, maybe check out a science museum, hit a festival, go to the opera, or just head out into nature. Well, the new Toyota Highlander is the perfect vehicle for discovery. It starts on the outside with its sleek design and aggressive new front grille that say, you've got an attitude for adventure. Its improved powertrain makes it more fun to drive and more fuel efficient than ever. It has Toyota Safety Sense technology standard, including a pre-collision system and lane departure alert. It even has five USB charging ports because you know the last thing you want is for someone's device to run out of power. And one of my favorite features is driver easy speak which lets you broadcast what you say to the rear seats so your passengers can hear you. It doesn't mean they'll listen, like my three-year-old, but at least they can hear you. So navigate to your nearest Toyota dealer or toyota.com and see why there's always more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. Drivers are responsible for their own safe driving. Always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely. Depending on the conditions of roads, weather, and the vehicle, the systems may not work as intended. See owner's manual for additional information and details. The TSS pre-collision system is not a substitute for safe and attentive driving practices. Lane departure alert is not a substitute for safe and attentive driving practices. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Alexandra Wolf. Thank you for having me. Reading your book is a little bit like, you know, reading the gossip columns in a sense, uh, <laughs> except the characters are pretty nerdy. <laughs> Not your usual celebrities. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, being someone that's based in the Bay Area, I really enjoyed it. There are a lot of times when I was nodding my head and thinking, oh, yes, um, you know, that's very familiar to me. But there are a lot of things that were very new to me. And one of the things that was new to me was access to all of these places like Tortuga and et cetera, you know, and other uh, places that I normally don't, I'm not cool enough or billionaire enough to get into. Um, <laughs> so let me ask you how you were able to infiltrate into this environment. Well, actually, um, I ended up having to write this in this author's note at the beginning, but I had met um, Peter Thiel um, a long time ago back in New York. I think it was 2006 or 2007, and uh, he was was running his hedge fund, uh, Clarium, then. And uh, he originally had wanted – he had started this Thiel Fellowship program, and he had wanted to do um, – a bus trip from the East Coast to the West Coast. It was it was a sort of that would pick up the uh, Teal Fellows and take them out to San Francisco as sort of a funny prank, which was based on the Merry Pranksters, which is um, a sort of hippie group that followed Ken Kesey around, um, and uh, that my father had written a book about called the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test. And so it was sort of a spoof of that. And so um, so that was sort of the original idea for the book. And, uh, and while I didn't necessarily want to go on the bus, this second generation bus as a participant, I thought it would be really good copy. And so um, – so that's sort of how I got into that world. And so I sort of got to know some of the, some of the people involved in the Teal Fellowship and, and the place like that you just mentioned, Tor- Tortuga in Mountain View, where a bunch of these people lived. 
were all those people were involved in organizing that bus trip that uh, that didn't end up actually happening um and then subsequently the teal fellowship which clearly did happen um and for people who don't know the teal fellowship is um is this program that peter teal the paypal founder and, and facebook investor um first um started uh to convince students to drop out of college and he paid he had students apply and then uh, with a big idea that would work in Silicon Valley or, you know, in, in the future, I guess, in general, and uh, and give them $100,000 uh, to 20 people under 20. And that started, um, he announced it back in 2010. Um, and so the first summer of those fellows was supposed to be a big bus trip. And so all of these characters, or at least most of the characters in the book, came from that original sort of crazy zany idea of doing this bus trip across country that hasn't that didn't happen. Maybe it will happen in the future, but but um, but it definitely didn't happen then because um, I think they the founders fund um, partners realized they probably should be raising a fund instead of spending a month on a bus with a bunch of teenagers. So yeah, so this is the first uh, sort of introduction that a lot of people had to Peter Thiel and his desire to disrupt higher education. You know, he came out and said, you know, not in so many words, of course, I'm paraphrasing, but college isn't for everyone, even though he has a college degree. And so I'm going to pay these young kids under 20, $100,000 not to go to college, instead to start a company. Um, and the first person that you describe is a kid who decides that he wants to mine asteroids. Yeah, exactly. So that's how a lot of us first came across Peter Thiel. Although in the last year, he's made a number of headlines right. for very different reasons. That's very true. <laughs> so for those of you who haven't uh, experienced that side of Peter Thiel, when a lot of big conservative donors were pulling money from the Republican presidential nominee, uh, Peter Thiel, was putting money into uh, Donald Trump's campaign. And that took a lot of people in the Bay Area uh, aback because, of course, uh, Donald Trump uh, campaigned on some issues that were very different from the kinds of things that people in the Bay Area hold dear. So what has the last year uh, and this sort of activity of Peter Thiel, has that changed how you view uh, his influence on our society? Well, I mean, in a way, it's strangely consistent in terms of how contrarian he is. I mean, so many there, a lot of I think the the Teal Fellowship. At least I've I've only known him, as I said, sort of since the mid two thousands. But but if you look back, I mean, he he sort of was behind. Uh, I don't know if you. Um, you probably heard of the Seasteading Institute that um, that uh, was sort of one of these man-made island ideas that has has yet to to happen, but is is sort of an, a completely crazy idea that he sort of, sort of thought, oh, this is sort of interesting. Why don't we get behind this? Um, and he didn't start it. Patrick Friedman um, started, it, but he thought it was a sort of interesting idea that showed people thinking differently, and. Um, and so the past year with his support for Trump and the Gawker story um, in which he supported Hulk Hogan's uh, lawsuit against uh, Gawker for posting his Hulk Hogan's sex tape were really surprising to the public. But in a way, although there's no similarity that I see in all these things, not that different from the the, the shock that um, I mean, the, in, in terms of the amount, I think, um, 
you could argue not that different from, from from the shock that maybe what he when he said oh I'm going to start an online currency or I'm going to start PayPal I mean nobody'd ever they'd say oh you're crazy or so many of these ideas if if you said back in 2010 I think all I think too many kids go to college people should drop out and they'll have a better chance in life people say oh that's crazy and I mean you'd have to ask him because I don't know how much or how little his beliefs actually align with Trump's I mean I don't think. It's, he made that that was necessarily an ideological decision. I think he sort of saw what the country was thinking in a way. Um, and it was sort of, I mean, again, I, I really can't speak for him, but it was sort of like he sort of saw the real estate market crash. And at the time, houses were selling like crazy. Nothing had gone down in years. And he's saying, oh, there's going to be a the real estate, there's going to be a real estate, a housing bubble. And so, um, so a lot of these proclamations that he's made, I mean, they're so charged this past year, just because the election was so charged. But in terms of, of his thinking, I mean, I don't see a huge change in terms of, of his willingness to go out on a limb. Um, it seems like he's always wanted to go, been willing to go out on a limb in, in that sense. Um, so to me, it's sort of just, I mean, somebody, I didn't say, I didn't come up with this, but somewhere I read, you know, this is his biggest bet yet, you know, on Trump, I mean, in terms of a, of a successful bet on something, I mean, successful for him, I mean, not for, for many people's views in Silicon Valley, I, I imagine. But um, it doesn't seem like a different person to me at all. It just seems like he likes sort of counterintuitive ideas. Well, for a very long time, especially in the US, we've put on a pedestal the individual who rises from nothing and makes a ton of money. Um, and and now in Silicon Valley, as you, you know, rightly point out, there's a second layer to that. It's not enough just to become a billionaire. You also have to save the world right. from something, right? <laughs> right. Um, which is kind of interesting to me because it makes it maybe seem a little bit more ethically palatable if everyone's out to really make the world a better place. And yet, very from the beginning of your book, even in the prologue, you describe a scene that made my skin crawl. Uh, it was a scene in which you talk about there's this party and there's all these young, you know, very rich uh, men and they're being pursued by really made up women. And for a long, for a lot of the um, discussion in that first part, the women are kind of relegated to, you know, starting up some vanity projects or, you know, making sure they have the right fitness uh, regimen going. And it's really upsetting uh, because, of course, uh, this is a year in which women feel really down downtrodden and not at all respected for intellect and ideas. Yeah, I mean, I completely, I know exactly what you mean. That, that scene um, was kind of um, jarring in so many ways. Um, and it, and I guess they still have it. I, I assume they still have the, the cougar nights every, every Thursday at the Rosewood, but in a way, weirdly in my reporting, when I was there, I heard more men complain than women. I mean, men would say they, there's no women like where I, you know, they have no, they can't, they have no dating life. There's no action. There's no, this, there's no, in Palo Alto, it was so boring. Like the only place open past 10 was a donut shop. Um, I'm sure that's changed now, but, but, uh, but it was more like, I, I, I actually heard more. I mean, the, the woman that I, the, the main woman in the book, I mean, of the three fellows that I follow the most is this woman, Laura Deming. And she actually never complained about 
being um, pushed aside for being a woman or being undervalued. It was, you know, she never said this, but I felt at least when she was um, a finalist that she, that it, people were drawn to her because she was so, you know, because she was different. She was a woman and she was, you know, doing something in a, in a man's world. Um, but you really, it's this weird paradox because in a way there's so few women. And so there's so little supply and, and, and men are don't, you know, there's so many guys who are engineers who are not, you know, we're not talking like suave wall street, slick billionaire engineer, successful guys. I mean, a lot of them are real nerds. And so they were the ones who have sort of had the problem in finding women to date or to, to meet. And I guess, um, there were so many high profile cases that showed that, that obviously the problem was I mean, like the Alan Powell case. I and mean, that was a while ago, but, but, uh, but that, that, you know, men are, are, or founders would sort of look for somebody who looked like Mark Zuckerberg, who's obviously not a woman. Um, and, and those people would be easier to get. They, they would, men would invest more and they would get more investment just because they fit this mold. I mean, I definitely heard a lot of that. Um, but it was this weird paradox of, 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 uh, and, and, and it was also, I wondered whether, I mean, the defense was, oh, fewer women actually go into engineering or computer science in college. And so there's just fewer that are interested, um, in the field in general. Um, so, so it was hard. To, I didn't. I didn't really come away thinking that it was hugely unfair. I guess I just came away thinking that it was um, there was a real lack of gender diversity. That's for sure. And in a way, it seems like it's getting better because I recently I felt I don't I don't know if you um, have talked to this woman um, Eileen Lee. Um, she runs. She was at Kleiner Perkins before, and now she runs her own uh, venture capital fund. And she said that some of those high profile cases have actually made things a lot better. In Sheryl Sandberg's book, and um, a lot of a lot of people bringing attention to it has actually improved it. I mean, I, walking around there, I don't really see a massive influx of women. But um, but maybe the perception has changed. I don't know. What do you do? You, do what do you find? Yeah. So, well, <laughs> I have a lot of uh, thoughts about it. You know, I think just want to let our listeners know that uh, in uh, season two, I think of the podcast Startup, uh, they document female founders and some of the gender bias that they experience firsthand. And uh, you know, I recommend that as a high listen because it, you know it is it is very clear that women get less funding. And, you know, we could cite a whole bunch of reasons for that. But I think one of the things that struck me in your book is that we're putting, again, on a pedestal, this, you know, image of, you know, this, this very young person. So youth is also really important. You talk about how, you know, a founder who's like 49 is geriatric, right. <laughs> you know, and this kind of idea that, you know, you need to wear a hoodie and a cool t-shirt and, and so forth. And it, and it makes me wonder if that just is, you know, that if it's harder for women to become this casual, hey, I just have this idea that I'm going to toss around and be taken seriously than it is for men. I mean, I, th I think completely, I mean, I just thought just being a, I had no idea that I was pitching when I was there, but just adjusting to that, that, that femininity there that seems so much less so than it does in New York. I mean, there's so many things that, that, you know, make, I'll just speak personally, cause I don't want to speak for a all women. But I mean, I feel good if I look like, if I feel female and if I wear certain things and if I, you know, 
dress a certain way. I don't want to wear sweatpants and a hoodie all day. I mean, it'd be really comfortable. I'd love to do that in my house, but it's sort of a weird, it is this weird double standard where you feel sort of like you should wear this outfit or you should to, to fit in. You, you have to, you have to sort of, you know, appear like you are so focused on, um, on your new company, on your work. I mean, you have so little time that you are just all work all the time and, and not focused on being social. I mean, there's nowhere to be social there that I found really. I mean, you, there, there were restaurants to go to, but none of it, people didn't really seem to dress up that much in my experience. And so it's this weird, weird. I mean, it was, it was just such a strange double standard. I mean, you talked to Laura Deming about this a bit and, and, uh, you know, she wore these sort of big, heavy combat boots and a mini skirt and, you know, sort of these funny, you know, be tough, but not too tough, but then not too feminine. And it, it just seems yeah. confused. I don't know. It's um, like if you're Elizabeth Salander, you know, it's okay. Yeah, exactly. The tattooed, gawked, you know, <laughs> hacker. That like, awesome. that's awesome. Um, but, um, but, um, but yeah, it was a funny, it was really, really interesting in that sense. Um, the other thing that was, that struck me recently was I interviewed um, Sally Krawcheck um, for something else. And um, she had been a Wall Street uh executive and now she's starting a she has her own startup and she's working with a lot of people in Silicon Valley and it's helping women investors. And this the statistics she had on how few investors that were female were were, were just as shocking as the few um comparative few number of female founders that were funded. Um, and so in that sense, it, there, it's sort of this weird disconnect on both sides. I mean, women are not investing very much either. And, and she- Sure. But if you look at, you know, the Forbes 500, yeah, <laughs> most yeah, of them yeah. aren't women. So there just isn't as much money at right. those levels. It's, you, right, right, right. Um, and so she, her, her idea was sort of empowering women to invest and, and that they don't, you know, for, for, for sexism or stereotypes or whatever, what have you, they, a lot of women don't know how, or don't have avenues to do so. And, and, and they're not elevate, you know, they're not, they don't, they're not given as many opportunities at private equity or venture capital firms, she was saying. Um, and so, and there's so many things that need to be fixed in that way. Um, and it seems like they're starting to, to focus on that a bit more, um, just as, just as there's so few minorities there. I mean, I interviewed, um, uh, a guy there who's who had started a um a razor a razor company and he uh which some which had been funded by Andreessen Horowitz and it was all sort of it was sort of um had a lot of social media to it and and a, a big online presence and uh those by a razor to save the world yes exactly <laughs> but those numbers were equally as as surprising i mean it was just sort of it was a very weird disconnect i guess but the saving the world thing i actually I mean, when I go out there, everybody rolls their eyes when you say save the world or transgress or disrupt or all these words that are such cliches in that, in, in, uh, in that world. But, um, in a way I just found it kind of heartening. I mean, I could sort of agree with you that I just thought they were sort of, at least if it's some, if it's a pretension, then it's a good one. I mean, I'd rather do that be like, Oh, I've got to get a certain number. I've got to make a lot of money. At least it's couched in something like, Oh, I want to do something for, for, for the species. Yeah, there's a, you know, just kind of putting this in, uh, like, not in a, in a real sort of obvious light. There's a, one of my favorite fastcodesign.com posts is called This $1,500 Toaster Oven is Everything That's Wrong with Silicon Valley Design. <laughs> uh, you know, I recommend people read it, but it's all about, you know, you can, 
when you're trying to create something that's disruptive and, you know, has all of these functions, you lose sight of the fact that not everything needs to be, you know, uh, tied to the Internet of Things and and completely algorithmed and so forth. The toaster oven works just fine. Yes. There, I mean, this is so funny. I was literally just thinking about this. I was at the airport coming back from um, Christmas vacation and uh, those have you seen those iPads on the tables in the restaurants in the, yes. in the airports? I mean, it's so ridiculous. And you go and you sit and you need about four waiters for every iPad to explain to the customer how to use the iPad. And then you can't even talk to the person across from you because there's a huge iPad in front of you. I mean, it's such a weird use of technology, but there's so many things like that where you're like, this is actually making my life so much harder. Not only do I need to meet to talk to five humans to figure out how to use it, but it's not improving any anything day to day, nor is it saving the world, or is I mean, it's not even saving silverware or plastic or paper. It's just sort of adding more metal to the table that you can't see over across from you. Anyway, that's my rant on uh, iPads on airport restaurant tables. Yeah. So it, but it kind of also highlights this idea that if everything's so fast, right? If you don't have to go to college where you actually learn to do research and think, you know, for yourself. Um, instead, if you're just kind of rewarded for taking a quick idea and trying to put together, you know, a company as fast as possible before you turn 20. Uh, and, you know, failure is something that we all put on our resumes, because that's a good thing. Um, it makes me wonder, what are we building in Silicon Valley for the vast majority of people? Because of course, Facebook, Uber, LinkedIn, these are unicorns, right? These are special companies that came out of, and there are, are, you know, I don't know what the actual statistics are. Maybe you can tell me, but like how many more fail? I mean, how many of the Peter Thiel fellows have gone on to be successful without a college education? Well, I mean, that's a really good question just because, I mean, it's really so few. And and it, and the results of the Teal Fellowship Program um, seem like they're in keeping with the results of everybody who goes to Silicon Valley. I mean, there are a few real standout, smart, um, you know, extremely successful, whether it be through luck or through extremely hard work people. But but um, it really echoed, uh, you know, other bubbles there and echoed other stories of success there. It was not an anomaly at all of, of success. I mean, there were, you know, one or two or three, maybe five tops who, 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 who had good, you know, had exits. I mean, they made millions of dollars, which is obviously amazing, but it was certainly not across the board. And it was so different case to case, just like the regular population um, of people who go out to Silicon Valley or who try to make it somewhere. And so, I mean, the uh, John Burnham, the one who set out to mine asteroids, was so fascinating to me, mostly because he was so thoughtful about it, and he had such colossal um, failures and successes in very short succession that um, that it it sort of it, he he was such a good foil for what was sort of happening out there. And and I mean, I look at the people who you know I profiled for for the Wall Street Journal where I, where I work full time. Um, and I have this column that's a profile column and often they're tech people and it's, it's, they worked very, very hard. I mean, they're the, I have this chapter in the book on, um, that includes a section on symbolic systems, this major at Stanford and the people in there, I mean, the amount of the, the intelligence you have to have even to get through that major, let alone start Instagram or LinkedIn, I mean, is, is so different than the regular population. And so it's, it didn't seem like that much luck. It didn't seem like you could just move there and suddenly be successful. I mean, 
so many of these people, I mean, I look at, if I look at your background, you have, you're a neuroscientist, you have, you're a soprano. I mean, you, this is an, ex, you have a, you have had an exceptional education and history and, and it's just not, it's not easy to go and not have to be there and, and be successful and not have that, which I think a lot of the fellows have found, you know, they don't, they have this huge initial rush of success with all this press, or if that's, if you can call press success. Um, and then the expectations were so high, their expectations were so high, but then when they got there, I think it was, it was, they were, they found that they had to, they, they didn't have a, a leg up, you know, they had to really, a lot of them really struggled a lot. And I think they really saw that a lot of these people have incredibly interesting and, and interesting backgrounds that don't just come from, you know, getting a hundred thousand dollars and moving to Palo Alto. It's, it, it was a lot more required than that, which probably within, to some of them was, was quite disheartening and frustrating. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really bold move to, you know, believe in yourself enough that you think you can just go there. I mean, I, I'm, as you noted, I'm overeducated, um, but a lot of that, you know, like, it's like you, it's, 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 um, a lot of these, these really successful people are, you know, like have a huge amount of education. I mean, I couldn't believe sitting there at this symbolic systems, like this, um, it was this, the, I guess it's a combination of, um, philosophy and computer science. It was, it was this sort of big, um, combined major at Stanford. I mean, just how much people studied and worked and learned. I mean, Peter Thiel himself has, has multiple degrees. So, so in a way, I mean, it, I, I, I did not come away thinking nobody should go to college. I mean, in a way I sort of came away sympathizing very much with John Burnham who ended up going back to Dartmouth. I mean, he, he, he felt like, you know, the shortcut, he didn't want the shortcut. I mean, some people probably do if they're, they have an extremely, and I think Peter Thiel might say the same thing. If they have a really extreme specific focus that they want to work on, they should not be bound to going down a certain track if they're so sure they want to do this one specific thing. But for the most part, I mean, it was, I thought it was, I mean, this John Burnham really wanted to be well-rounded. He really wanted to learn about religion. He really wanted to learn about history. He loved making the connections between time periods and books. And, um, and I think that's so valuable. I mean, it's, it, it just, it just, um, it just became more so to me after writing this. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people would argue that's really at the core of what creativity is. It's about, you know, having a foundation of knowledge and then being able to apply that in a new way to a field uh, maybe than which you are a disruptor. And so I guess that brings me to another one of my questions for you, which is about this glorification of youth. Why shouldn't people, you know, why can't we just say, look, go to college for four or six or however many years you want to go to college for, get that knowledge, and then you have the tools that you need to come back and disrupt. Is there is there a notion that if you don't peak earlier, if you don't have your ideas early, that somehow our society beats the creativity out of you? Yeah, actually. I mean, that was the, that was definitely the sense I got from when I was reporting, um, the book. It's, it definitely, it seemed like college, you know, and some people thought in a way college sort of ruined you. I mean, that you were sort of a would become extremely soft. I mean, which actually I probably did, you know, I, I learned much more in high school than in college. I sort of, you, it's easy to skate by when you don't have your parents there when you're sort of, so so for somebody who's not, doesn't have a, a company idea, I think in a way they sort of had a point there, but they sort of 
were saying that you don't um, you're, you don't uh, self motivate that you're sort of in this extended playground, you know, for, for a four year vacation and you're just partying all the time. And the emphasis is so much on socializing and, and networking and not on focus or hard work or coming up with new ideas or thinking differently. And you're trying so hard to fit into this, you know, four year microcosm of, 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 uh, fantasy land in a way that you're not, um, you're not thinking out of the box. And, uh, so I think that was part of their thinking. And then, and then when they come to Silicon Valley though, they of course extend the, some of the, uh, sort of college experience, you know, they live in dorm communes, they play ping pong, they have snacks, you know, available at all times. So do you feel like they are trying to, um, continue this kind of carefree, atmosphere that college can give? Or is it just about, look, we just want you to stay in the building forever, because creative things only happen if you spend enough time thinking about the problem? Well, I bet it, that's actually really funny. I bet I bet it's a bit of both. But um, it, that's a really, really good point. I mean, it's just so funny that the companies like the sort of Google aesthetic has become such a um, a regular thing that that's almost become a cliche. It's like, oh, do you have bean bags? Do you have what kind of kale chips do you have? I mean, do you have, you know, what cold pressed coffee do you have that will make you stay up all night to eat mochi ice cream at four a.m. and then, you know, it's just- nitro, nitro. <laughs> oh, there we go. Good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it is. It is pretty funny in that sense. You're right. Um and. In this fast-paced culture, there's also uh, a kind of the fact that sort of credentials are taken for granted. People don't really do the deep research. So one example uh, that I'm going to call out from your book is Aubrey de Grey, who is often referred to as a Cambridge scientist, a Cambridge researcher. But the truth is, is he's not a professor at Cambridge. Uh, he did get his PhD there after a long period of time of being there and dating a fruit fly geneticist. So (laughs) (laughs) maybe he was the spousal hire, uh, as it were. Uh, And, you know, he also inherited a bunch of money, which he put into his own foundation. So this idea that he's, you know, just been, um, and and, uh, for those of you who don't know, I should say that he is trying to solve the problem of getting old. (laughs) Um, That's his his, his big contribution. Um, and it's controversial. So what do you think about that? The fact that, you know, we sort of call him a Cambridge scientist because that makes him sound like he has more gravitas. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't, he doesn't need to be an actual professor at Cambridge to get that gravitas. Right. I mean, this is, this sort of, your question sort of calls forth the inherent paradox in all this. It's like, here is this person who wants to change the way we think, the way we live, the way we die or don't die. And Cambridge is this brand that is this acceptable mode of doing this. And it's almost like you have to use the institution to break the institution. And so it's this weird, um, it's like, it's sort of, it's, you sort of want to ask, why do you need to, if if you're so anti-institution, if you so want to change tradition and change the way people think, I mean, he's, he calls, um, aging a disease, which I mean, I actually sort of found kind of refreshing. It's so nice and, 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 and optimistic to think that way. But it is really funny that his credential is, I mean, you think when you think him, you think Cambridge. I mean, I don't know how much weight he would carry if it was, if he was just sort of singularity university. I mean, it's like, I mean, it seems pretty big in, in California, but, but um, if he, if he told the world, oh, a singularity university professor wants to end aging, I say, oh yeah, of course he does. But you say, oh, Cambridge professor wants to end aging. It's more shocking. Um 
so it is part of this funny, you know, it's, it, it reminds me of so many other sort of terms that I heard out there that everybody's heard now, but like sort of hacking education, hacking morality, hacking death. Um, everything has to be hacked and it helps if you're hacking something to have a nice um, name, brand or institution behind you. So I want to take this moment to let our listeners know that Alexandra's book, Valley of the Gods, a Silicon Valley story is available at booksellers everywhere. And um, my husband read your book uh, as well. Oh, nice. <laughs> because, uh, oh, you know, since we Peter. both live in the Bay Area. <laughs> uh, and he pointed out something really ironic, uh, which is that, you know, Silicon Valley is also the place where uh, there are scientists who are studying parabiosis, which is this notion that uh, old people can suck the blood of the young uh, to become young again. I mean, what, I, that's so interesting. Interesting. I'd never heard of that before. Yeah. So there's this research where it started out where you take two mice and you, you know, stitch them together, an old one and a young one. And uh, when the old one gets the young one's blood, it, you know, rejuvenates. Oh, my God. Uh, and it, I thought that was a really apt metaphor for, uh, you know, the book. Uh, and Hilarious. so I, I want to sort of get some last thoughts uh, from you from that perspective, this idea that, you know, is that one thing that's happening in Silicon Valley, that we are um, sucking the blood of the young <laughs> as we make them work uh, nonstop? Uh, or, you know, is there something else that you think uh, that uh, is going to come out of Silicon Valley that will change the way uh, our society functions? Well, I guess in a way, I mean, that's such a that's such a good example. Oh, my gosh. I wish I'd known that and I wish I'd put it in my book. Um, but <laughs> I love that. The um, I guess in a way, it, it, you see, some some people would might think the reverse as well. You know that the young people are sucking the old people's blood. That they're getting all the you know that that the, they're the future. That old people are getting you know replaced by machines and people who know how to code. I mean, I feel like the huge moral of this book, um, on a, in a lighthearted level, would be just learn how to code, take computer science early. But in a way. Um, I guess the idea of, I mean, that's such a good example. Gosh, the idea of, of, uh, having to be young, it, it, it's a little bit fake. Um, both in these six year olds wearing hoodies and shorts and dyeing their hair. And also, um, in the idea that young people started all these companies. I mean, a lot of people, I guess, have, have pointed out that there's always an, you know, quote, an adult in the room. I mean, Eric Schmidt was the first, you know, we you know, ran Google at first for so long and, and that Guild Group actually, you know, had an older person behind the scenes. And, and a lot of these companies weren't necessarily run by kids. So in a way, it's not entirely true, but the emphasis has become so much on that. And another way, I think over time, I think the glory of eating ramen and living out of your car that's dented and, you know, has no air conditioning, isn't that glorious anymore. I mean, it's sort of at least the track of going to Wall Street or joining a private equity firm or a consulting firm or something like that um, gave you a big salary for a lot of hard work. But but this new, I mean, in a way, trend doesn't do any of that, really. I mean, it's not a comfortable life. And it's. I think people find it a lot harder sooner than, than, um, than, than they think they will. And so in a sense that, that metaphor is very apt. I mean, it doesn't seem like they're not sort of living off the fat of the land out there. I think a lot of them are turning around and going home or at least getting a job at Facebook or Google if they can. So I think in terms of, of, of the flood of entrepreneurs, um, 
I think your husband's point is well taken. <laughs> well, it'll be really interesting to see what influence Peter Thiel and his ideas have, of course, on the incoming presidential and uh, administration, uh, given that they've already had uh, meetings that he's been facilitating with the uh, heads of tech. Uh, so, you know, I think there's something to be watched here. Um, but I also really appreciate the deep dive that you took in your book to open up uh, some of the, you know, some of these, I guess, habits and lifestyles of the individuals that are here in Silicon Valley, and, you know, highlighting which one of them, which of those might lead to excellence and, and success, which is, you know, it seems like learning to code and putting in the hours. Yeah. <laughs> um, and which are things that we should really start to question, uh, which is the bias and, you know, both in gender and in terms of, um, you know, minorities, uh, people with disabilities, etc. And, you know, how sometimes when we have this kind of moral idea that we are going to save the world, um, that we also need to look in our own backyard and make sure that we're not doing that at the cost of all the people around us. Yeah, I completely agree. So thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Alexandra Wolf. Thank you so much. So even though I live here in the Bay Area, I was kind of expecting the description of this place to be more like Silicon Valley, the TV show, than it turned out to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's still a bit of that, I would say. It's sort of more like, I don't know, Silicon Valley, the kind of hive for rich engineers. I don't know. It's uh, there. There's definitely some truth to the television show if uh, Alexandra Wolf's reporting is on on point, which I believe it is. This phrase, like, we're going to change the world, that's so embedded in uh, parlance here in the Bay Area and so often came up in your conversation with Alex, I, I thought, I laughed. I, I chuckled just as you did when you were talking about it. But there's like this nugget core of an incredible sentiment there that certain unicorns that you highlighted have been able to really achieve. So... After hearing all of Alexandra's like reporting and embedding, do you still sort of chuckle and, and snicker when you hear that phrase? Well, I think it's like any industry where there are some good ideas that, you know, really dominate the field. And there are some people who have a much bigger influence than others. And I think that's very true for Silicon Valley uh, and the startup culture. And, you know, I think I think people just I think a lot of people don't realize how difficult it is to, you know, build a billion dollar startup because it seems so easy when you hear these stories that they're so young and, you know, but not only is it uh, challenging, but it's also, you know, it's it's very unlikely. And yet, I can't argue with the sentiment of someone trying, you know, wanting to start a business with the, you know, with an effort to change the world. I think what kind of what I bristle at is when in a lot of these pitch conferences, you know, where you're pitching your idea to a whole bunch of potential investors, um, you kind of have to have that change the world. There's there's a kind of series of rules now that you kind of have to follow and boxes that you need to tick uh, in order to be considered, you know, one of the uh, best options. And I, I wonder, first of all, to what extent that really is predictive of a potential unicorn or whether investors, you know, uh, really should be looking at other other factors and to what extent it can be this kind of a formula and how important that is because certainly there's a lot of um, if, you know if you look at the Forbes 40 richest under 40 <laughs> majority of them are uh, people who have 
started in Silicon Valley and then, you know, a bunch of rock stars. So there's something to that in terms of the amount of money that can be made. But um, this whole ethos to change the world, I think, you know, does it does it get in people's way? Does it become like that people have this dream uh, to change the world? And, you know, I don't want to argue with it. On the other hand, it makes me wonder if uh, it's really ultimately what the sole focus if you're starting a business should be. Maybe it should be. You know, her book, Through the Eyes of the the Teal Fellows, which he follows around significantly, really paints this disrupted culture that, that you referred to a lot in the interview. You know, there's disdain for completing a traditional college education. Even relationships are different and um, you know, there, uh, there's a, a role of new money that we haven't seen before. Do you see this culture of Silicon Valley, lack of a better term, on the rise and expanding out? Is this going to be sort of the new culture or is this really just some sort of niche that's emerged in this sort of special time? Well, without any science to back me up, I'm going to go totally out on a limb here and say that this is very Amero-centric. It's very American to have this kind of attitude because in a lot of other countries, especially, you know, in countries that are um, westernized and that are, uh, you know, wealthy, but so I'm thinking of Europe, I'm thinking of Canada, I'm thinking of Australia, New Zealand, um, there isn't as big a push towards individualism and kind of, you know, the rise of, you know, pulling yourself up. I think there's better social infrastructure. Uh, and so people um, respect the fact that they owe essentially a debt to society. And, and, in my opinion, that is an important thing to impart in people because it's what is at the core of, you know, feeling like you have civic duty. And I think that's really important um, as opposed to this like winner take take all. I just need to, you know, think about myself culture. Um, and it worries me that there, uh, America is going more towards that uh, you know, that kind of leaning, uh, given, you know, who our president it, it is. <laughs> Sorry, it's still hard for me to say. Um, and, you know, the what, what's just happened. Uh, and I worry about that, because I worry about the effect it has on people who uh, just don't have the opportunities, uh, not from any lack of, you know, potential or drive or desire. Um, and so, you know, but that's my liberal bias. I actually really wonder if this culture will spread. And again, there isn't a lot of science here, as you alluded to, uh, but it's become so pervasive. The There's a lure to the lifestyle that Silicon Valley has created. And while I recognize the the backlash against it as well, I, you know, it's hard to argue with the way that um, the results from Silicon Valley, whether they're unicorns or not, have really eased my lifestyle. I, you know, Facebook and Google and uh, so many of the others. But at the same time, um, there is this, un I'm slightly unsettled with the the rise of this culture, particularly the, the sort of insular nature it has. And um, I was really glad to hear the story kind of get the light in a, in a way uh, that Alexandra covered it, which seemed about as fair as you can do. Yeah. And, you know, maybe when uh, we hit the singularity and artificial intelligence becomes our uh, overlords, uh, yeah, we won't have much say into it, but our lives will certainly change. Oh, are we are we going into full Bay Area speak? Because we're disrupting the audible economy this week with our <laughs> incredible... <laughs> 
podcast Wait. diet, paleo <laughs> podcast diet. There we go. I got it in enough terms there. Yeah, yeah. Although I think our pitch needs work. I think uh, we, we have to go to uh, some kind of incubator. <laughs> so that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgul, Kyle Rahila, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Thank you so much. We can't do this podcast without you. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your elevator pitch for the next disruption of Silicon Valley or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Oh, and if you happen to be in Los Angeles, come see the show that I'm associate director on. It's Così Fan Tutti, Mozart's comedic masterpiece directed by Jonathan Lin. And it is at the Pasadena Opera, which is at A Noise Within in Pasadena. This weekend, January 27th, 28th, and 29th. PasadenaOpera.org. And once again, support for this podcast comes from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. With its sleek, aggressive design, improved powertrain for better performance and fuel efficiency, plus standard Toyota Safety Sense technology, there's always more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. Visit toyota.com for details. Drivers are responsible for their own safe driving. Always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely. Depending on the conditions of roads, weather, and the vehicle, the systems may not work as intended. See owner's manual for additional limitations and details. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.